the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Thanksgiving season is once again upon us as we think of family and friends, meals and menus, and gathering together to certainly celebrate the great abundance and richness that we as Americans enjoy. Even in spite of the current economic downturn, America is still the most blessed nation on planet Earth. Now, there are plenty of books on the topic of cooking and feasting. There are certainly books on fasting and dieting if after Thanksgiving you are inclined to lose a few pounds. Uh, But how about one on feasting and fasting from a uniquely biblical perspective? I think they've kindly come up with a book that's never been written before. And joining me right now is the editor of this wonderful book, assembled by 34 independent writers looking at feasting and fasting toward God. The book is called The Spirit of Food and Leslie Leland Fields. Great to have you on the show with us today. Well, thanks for, for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be with you. You know, we talk about Thanksgiving and certainly our, our thoughts turn toward the Thanksgiving menu and getting family together and uh, celebrating this uh, uniquely American holiday. Um, Where did the concept come of sitting down and gathering the caliber of authors that you have here to talk about spiritual perspectives, I guess we'll call it, on food? Well, you know, I've been watching um, the whole sort of food movement, you know, what's been going on in the last 10 years in American culture over food. And um, it's been it's been really interesting. I think that we have become as a culture more and more interested in food and and we know that because there's the food network and there there are all these shows that are about um you know cooking food eating food isn't there one called bizarre foods or something oh yes yes uh uh-huh yeah i haven't Mm -hmm. seen it but um so there's a, there's clearly just a huge fascination, a growing fascination with, with foods. But there's also a parallel um, thing going on, and that is, and, and of course they're very closely connected, and that is the whole obesity issue. So we've we've got a real fascination with food. But I I was so you know as I've watched this this going on, I've thought you know where. Where is the spiritual aspect of, of food? That 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 element, that huge element, um, is missing, and and I, I think that the time is 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 ripe. I, I hope I don't fall into food metaphors through this whole interview, but the time is ripe to start to to bring back together the spiritual part of food and the physical part of food, and to marry them back together, which is how God created food in the first place to feed us to feed not just our bodies, but to feed our spirits and our souls as well. And, you know, it's an interesting fascination because I think for a good part of American history, uh, food was one of our great pastimes. Things uniquely American, uh, you know, your hamburgers, your hot dogs, uh, things of this sort. And in recent years, you're right, the last decade or so, it seems as if the focus on food for more of a, a gourmet aspect of it has come into 
center stage uh, on the American plate and palate. And I think that's a good thing. It's interesting because other cultures certainly celebrate. They, they revel in food. I think of French cooking, Italian cooking, yeah. which is my background. Yeah. Now to see sort of that, that focus on higher caliber, a higher quality of food, and all that goes with it, which is interesting because, you know, it's one thing to slap a hamburger on the, the, yeah. the, the, the grill and in 20 minutes you're eating. Um, more we're seeing interest in, in complicated recipes, recipes that take time, recipes that take a lot of love. And so we're finding, I think, here in this new book that you've edited, The Spirit of Food, a combination of those things coming together. And, and I think it's also interesting because we see so many images of food used throughout the Scripture, even, even as we talk about the body of Christ coming together at the Supper of the Lamb, that great banquet table in heaven. Strong images are used there that, unfortunately, I think uh, Americans have not quite uh, come to that realization of. No. I, you know, Craig, that is so true. We really have not paid attention, I don't think, to um, to, to the food and the scriptures and to, and to all that it represents. And it is so fascinating to, to start to follow that. Even if you simply follow the word bread from the beginning of the scriptures through to the end. Um, and, you know, when the, when the scriptures open, we open in a garden. And some of the first words that God says to Adam and Eve are about food. You know, here, I've given you all of this, you know, to eat. Here's what you may eat. Here's what you may not eat. And and the fall of man happens over, over food, you know. And, and really what's going on is that Adam and Eve are saying, you know, we don't want to be dependent on you to feed us. We want to we want to feed ourselves, and that's why I think all of us have a choice um, as believers. You know, are we gonna are we gonna are we going to eat like Adam and Eve, who who um, stepped back from their dependence on God their Father to feed them and said, no, we're going to feed ourselves. We're going to eat what we want to eat. Are we going to eat like Christ, who remained completely dependent on God for? For everything that he ate, and even you know, when you think about his um, out in the out in the wilderness when he was out for forty days and he didn't eat, and and Jesus was just out there. He was you know he was starving, but he would not eat. And that was the first temptation that Satan brought to him. You know, hey, you're hungry. God, your father is not feeding you. Feed yourself. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus would not do it. He would not do it. He remained dependent on his father to feed him. So I think that it's very important that we sort of make this this choice and have this realization that every food that comes into our hands and that we that we're able to eat as a gift from God is you know that God is feeding us and that we bring that gratitude and that recognition to it. You know, it, it strikes me too that as we've seen America become less spiritual, church attendance down, uh, drifting away from some of our Judeo-Christian moorings that we've enjoyed in this nation historically, yeah. uh, we've become less spiritual and yet more of a gluttonous nation. Uh, oh. Obesity is significantly on the rise, and it almost makes you wonder as we draw the strong parallels that we see between spirituality and food from Scripture, this idea that we're eating more in an attempt and a, a false one at that to try and somehow satisfy yeah. ourselves, to, to satisfy a hunger, yeah. a hunger that in reality is only met from 
spiritual renewal, uh, you know, and I think of the images as you were talking, uh, Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life, yes. uh, living water will I give to you to drink that you yeah. will thirst no more. Uh, isn't it curious that it is, they, they joke oftentimes about, well, if you get sent to jail, they'll give you a basic meal of bread and water, thinking that as the, the fundamental necessities of life and that imagery that Christ paints of the connection between the two, I think is something that, that ought to cause us to pause and ponder. Oh, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree with you more, Craig, that I think the reason we're seeing this, the um, just the continued rise of obesity, and it's so interesting that, you know, everyone in the country knows it's a problem, and yet we keep on getting fatter. And uh, we are trying to feed all of these other hungers, our spiritual hungers, our hunger for belonging, our hunger for community. We're trying to fill those hungers with food. And, um, and, and, and it's true that God intends food to feed us in these other ways, but you can't do it without the Lord. You can't do it without the living bread and without the living water. And perhaps, too, do you think, Leslie, that God wants us to see the two connected so that when we sit down, much as a lot of Europeans do, that a meal becomes uh, something huge in and of itself. Uh, go to the home of an Italian family. Yeah. And dinner is not just something, you know, tossed in front of you, which is wolfed down in 20 minutes and then back yeah. to the TV set. This is a three, four, sometimes five hour experience. Meals brought out, uh, the, the meal brought out course by course. You linger over this and you 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 relish in the smells and the flavors and the textures. And, and you spend time talking and dialoguing with friends yeah. and family around the table. Yeah. It takes on an entirely different feel and a very spiritual one I think. It really does and the table if you follow the word table through the scriptures that's another fun word to follow you'll see that table is always the symbol both sort of the symbol and, and the reality of it's, it is about communion and about relationship and Jesus talks about talks about heaven when he when um, when when he's at the last supper and he's breaking the bread and he's saying this is my body broken for you and we always concentrate on those verses but then a few verses down he says I'm, I confer on you a kingdom that my father has conferred on me and you will come and sit at my table and eat with me and this is the image of heaven of all of us that this is the ultimate belonging and the ultimate fulfillment of relationship and um, and we can do we can begin to do that now just as you're saying the Europeans are so good at doing this and, and we have we have to slow down as Americans and um, and enjoy the time around the table as uh, a time of connecting deeply with one another and sitting there in in, in uh, communion with one another and communion with God out of gratitude for the gifts of family and friends and the gifts of the amazing food that he brings to our table. Our time today around the table visiting with Leslie Leland Fields, editor of a new book entitled The Spirit of Food, 34 Riders on Feasting and Fasting Toward God. The new book, by the way, published by Cascade and available at Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, allow you to sort of uh, clear the palate. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Leslie Leland Fields as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest today. She is Leslie Leland Fields. She is the editor of a new book entitled The Spirit of Food, 34 Riders on Feasting and Fasting Toward God. We thought it would be appropriate to spend some time talking about this topic as it relates to the celebration that we have on Thanksgiving, family and friends gathered around that feast table um, in, in a sense of celebration and appreciation for the bounty and goodness that the Lord has shown toward us in the last year. And at the same token, looking at this unique connection that we see throughout Scripture between Christ, our relationship with the Lord, and food. Speaking earlier about that great banquet table that we'll enjoy um, when that last trumpet sounds, um, Jesus himself referring to himself as the bread of life, giving us living water. I'm reminded, too, Leslie, at Thanksgiving time, when my grandmother was still alive, um, and I've tried to continue the tradition um, as I've taken over hosting the, the annual family Thanksgiving gathering, to bring foods to the table that were representative of, of a number of, of sources. There was always bread as a gift from earth, uh, fish as a gift to us from the sea, uh, the turkey, of course, things of that sort. Uh, in an Italian household, you might uh, serve wine with the meal, uh, celebrating the, the, the fruit of the vine. Mm-hmm. Always that sense of trying to connect the big picture. Right. Is that a big part of what your writers do in this new book in terms of connecting the big picture between gathering together for a meal and the way that a meal is celebrated in light of our relationship with the Lord? Oh, absolutely. And they come at it from all different perspectives, which is really fun because some of the writers are... um Farmers. There's a woman who's a wheat and pig farmer in Canada and who's, who's talking about it from the perspective of a farmer. Other people are professional chefs. Others are just um, um, someone who grows tomatoes in a Cincinnati backyard, um, his suburban backyard. And so people are coming from lots of different perspectives and showing us lots of different ways to reconnect um, our food and our faith. And But all of them, what we're trying to do is is to return to God's intention for for meals and for feasting, which really was about commemoration, and, and that's what you're talking about. You said you would have, you know, a fish, something from the sea, and something from the vine, and and the Old Testament, you know, God instituted um, all of these feasts. I believe there are seven feasts that, that God um, instituted, and every one of them is intended to commemorate something, you know, that God has done, whether it's the Harvest Festival or whether it's the Passover commemorating the, the um, you know, the Angel of Death passing over um, the Israelites. But there was always this connection between um, real events and God's provision and the food on the table. And I think as Americans, I think we have, we just, I, I think we've forgotten, forgotten that connection and made it so much about the food. So I'm hoping that with this book that we can begin to to reconnect food and gratitude. The book is a fun one because you have each of the authors share some perspective, some tell some stories, then they eventually lead into to recipes. So it's, it's wonderful the way you, you've combined all of this. And, and interesting, I'm, I'm curious about where you gathered, how you selected these authors. Uh, we have stories in there and recipes, for example, from a relief worker's mobile kitchen that responded to uh, the hurricane down in, in uh, Louisiana, the uh, Katrina. Uh, I, I was struck, too, one of 
the writers, the goddaughter of a woman who once, in, in running her, her little restaurant, who once cooked for John Dillinger. How fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's just so many fun stories of how this all came about, but some of the people... Um, a few people I knew, some of the people I knew already, and I and I knew that they had really interesting, fascinating thoughts and, and about food and, and interesting food practices. And so I would ask them, uh, like Lucy Shaw, some people she's quite well known. I said, Lucy, would you write an essay on something about the connection between food and, and spirit in your life? And so I asked um, a number of uh, of people to, to write something for me, and then I found other essays um, in, in books. There are some real classic um, essays in there, one from Wendell Berry, another from Robert Farrar Capon. So just some, and Andre Debut, some really well-known people who've written beautiful pieces about food. And then they were friends of friends. You know, someone said, well, I know this woman who used to be a baker in Manhattan, and she just up and packed everything up and moved to an organic goat farm in Maine. <laughs> and she's a writer. <laughs> so it just was incredible how this network just spread out. And, and I got all these amazing people to, to write for the book. Uh, there are recipes of a kosher nature here that, that take us back to the uh, the Talmud and uh, the way a, tr- a typical Jewish family would, would prepare a meal, which I found interesting, even vegetarian recipes. Yeah, yeah, there are a few people in the in the book who are vegetarian and who feel very much convicted by God at this point in their lives. That that's, you know, that's how... Um, they should eat, but you know the neat thing is there's when we start talking about food and then you start talking about um what we eat as a Christian, sometimes people can get really legalistic about it and start making rules and laws. And and there, there's none of that in here. You know, these are people writing beautifully from within their own food lives and giving us a picture, really kind of illuminating some of the possibilities for, for, um, for eating, you know, in, in a more faithful way. Now, you are based out of our, our 50th state. You're way up in Alaska. Actually, we're the 49th. 49th. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I, I moved you down a notch. I, yeah, Hawaii. That's right. Hawaii is 50. Hawaii did come in afterwards. You're yeah. absolutely right. After, after World War II, I have to keep my, uh, my, my numbers straight here in my head. So you're from our 49th state. Um, any, any contributions in here from you? Yes. Um, I mean, I have an essay in here um, called Making the Perfect Loaf of Bread. And um, I, bread is a very, goes very deep um, in, into my life and my life story. I grew up um, very, very poor um, with a, a, a father who didn't work and a mother who with, with six children. So she wasn't really able to work. And bread was kind of what we lived on. We made our own bread. And... Um, this is back in the 60s. Okay, so I'm going to reveal my age here. But um, so we made 21 loaves of bread a week, and that was our that was our main source of food. We didn't have a lot of food, but we did have this bread. And so I grew up making bread, 21 loaves a week, and then and, and I've made all my own bread out at our fish camp. We um, live on an island off Kodiak Island in the summer, where we commercial fish for salmon, and it's very remote and. I make all of our own bread out there. So I'm really looking and weaving together my own life story with bread 
together with um, all the biblical imagery of bread and the significance of bread. And I'm also asking the question about perfection. What is perfection and what is the value of our human making? Because there's a recipe out there now online. I'm sure all the bread makers out there know about it. It's called um, No Need Bread. You can make this wonderful bread without kneading it. I mean, it basically makes itself, you know, just by sitting overnight. And um, to me, it, it is a wonderful bread, but it's sort of tragic to think that you don't have to put your hands in the dough. You know, you don't get to lean your body into it. it the, the bread is just not nearly as, as alive and as much of a creation from your own your own hands and your own body. Um, yeah. So I'm doing a lot of reflection about that. You know, and it's interesting. I, I think back again to my grandmother and the homemade bread and the smells that would come from the kitchen. Uh, and how marvelous those experiences were. Uh, again, this sense of, of celebration all the time. Even in Italian tradition, if someone purchases a new home, as you go for the housewarming, you bring a loaf of bread, a large stick of salami, and a bottle of wine for celebration, and that the, the home would always have uh, sustenance. There would, there would always be a food and joy in that home. Uh, lots of just strong images that I think as we sit down and enjoy our meal on Thanksgiving or even as folks go to prepare it that this should be less so about the time it takes and sometimes we get caught up in all the details mm-hmm. and and don't really enjoy even the celebration that can be a part of the, the celebration that happens once you break the bread once you sit down to feast and that is just the process of the food preparation itself. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I, yes, that's what I want to say, too, is that we, we are so speed-focused and convenience and efficiency-focused, and I'm just as bad as everyone else on this. But it's a great time, especially for these special feasts, to just slow down and and enjoy the food that, that, that those yams that you are peeling or cutting up smell them feel them enjoy their incredible color and um, just uh, just marvel at, at at onions and garlic and all of these things that are God's idea God's creation and clearly God is a god of beauty and God is a god with really excellent taste buds because <laughs> he he clearly values um, beauty and taste and just just the sensuality of all these foods. So hopefully we've given you some uh, some more, uh, forgive the pun, food for thought as we head into Thanksgiving. And a delightful book that, uh, while certainly timely for this season, is a perennial that you'll enjoy throughout the year. It's called The Spirit of Food, 34 Writers on Feasting and Fasting Toward God, replete with all kinds of really delicious recipes and the kind of spiritual perspective in here that I think uh, gets you refocused on the important things and all of the, the parallels that we see drawn in Scripture between uh, the sustenance we enjoy, uh, the food that is on our table, and our relationship with the Lord. The book, published by Cascade Books, available through Amazon.com. You can also get more information at Leslie's website. It's simply leslie-leland-fields.com. So just put a hyphen in there between leslie-lelandfields.com, and that'll take you right to her website. The Spirit of Food. Leslie Leland Fields, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun to talk about this subject. Thank you. And uh, might I say, bon appetit. Oh, and, and, and the same to all your listeners. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
We've often, I think, on the topic of taxes as Americans, drawn the conclusion that historically it was things like the Boston Tea Party and the sense of taxation without representation that spurred the American Revolution and brought America to where she is today. My next guest, though, will suggest mm, not quite true. Played a role, to be sure. But in fact, instead of the revolution sparking, uh, sparked by high taxes, it would instead be outrage against British attempts to suppress God-given, those so-called inalienable rights that we see articulated in the Constitution that we have today. Some insights now as we're joined by the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. He's also the author of 16 best-selling books. His latest is entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. And Rod Gregg, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Glad to be here. What headed you down this trajectory? I mean, obviously, you spent a lot of your life in the arena of, of looking at the Battle of Gettysburg in one of your books. You, you, you've been very much focused on the founding of our nation and, and the roots that we have. And, and I think, to be sure, most of us, certainly people listening to a program like this, see the faith-based roots of our nation. But to take it a step further now and, and suggest that as much as we've typically understood the American Revolution to be sparked by taxation, without representation actually coming down to something a lot more valuable, quite frankly. Uh, this, this, I think, is some new news for folks. Well, I think it's, uh, it's an old story that needs to be re- retold because it's been uh, neglected in our day and has been uh, largely forgotten uh, by, uh, by our nation. But it it's really uh, goes to the heart of who we are and, and what we became as a nation. And the American Revolution was a faith-based revolution because Americans were a faith-based people and that faith was a biblical one. So the things that you mentioned, uh, taxation, uh, lack of representation in Parliament, uh, events that uh, were somewhat of a catalyst like the Boston Tea Party, other protests, all those things were uh, had a role and all of them uh, were kind of the dominoes falling, but uh, they were symptomatic of something deeper and that is that the American people, is, as you put it well, um, American people were, were biblical. Colonial American people and the Americans at the time of the Revolution were uh, biblically literate. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody was devout. You had the, the devout, you had the nominal, you had the uninterested. But the, the American thought at the time was uh, firmly founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, the culture was... Um, predominantly Protestant, it was overwhelmingly Christian, and it was almost universally Judeo-Christian in its approach. And that was the foundation of American culture, law, and government. So when these events occurred, these controversial events, over a period of time, increasing numbers of uh, Americans came to, to view King George III and Parliament as attempting to usurp the higher law of God and to uh, force the law of man instead. They saw them as uh, usurping uh, what they called inalienable or God-given rights, rights to life, to liberty, to what they called the, uh, the freedom to pursue happiness. And they came to view, eventually, uh, in great numbers, uh, King George III as a tyrant. That's why uh, American troops marched off to war in the Revolution under battle flags adorned with the ba- with the slogan that said, uh, "Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God." 
You you take the title of your new book by the hand of providence um, from a quote from George Washington, um, and I think as we think of him as uh, you know one of the key founding fathers, uh, uh, the first president of the United States. Although was somebody in there actually for a couple of days or something? I forget all the details on that, but 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 widely recognized as the first president of the United States. Uh, as we see the role that he played, Valley Forge, all the way through the list. Give us some insights in terms of this man in particular and the the role that his faith played in taking the risk that he did in the founding of our nation. Well, and some people have made the, the case, uh, I think, kind of a weak one, the case uh, in recent uh, years that the presidents of the Continental Congress uh, in those days before the Constitution, during the, the time of the Articles of Confederation, were in a sense presidents, but they were not president of the United States. Uh, Washington was the first it's it's really you really cannot overemphasize the influence of George Washington. Now, uh, the American Revolution was really taken forward by the American people. They're often overlooked, and the leaders reflected the worldview, the faith of the American people. So you had the American people, you had their leaders in the Continental Congress, and then you had uh, George Washington, who was really heads above all others. Um, and he was greatly influential in inspiring his officers and troops to stay in this uh, this movement, to stay in this revolution. And he also inspired the American people. And it wasn't because he was a good general, and he became a good general. He became a great strategist, a good tactician, but he grew into that. What inspired the American people about Washington was his character. And that character was based on his personal faith, and that faith was clearly biblical. And that faith. Talk, talk to me about your research in terms of the influence on that faith, on the decisions and the risks that he took personally um, in the American Revolution. Well, Washington was um, a, a low-church Anglican uh, who was uh, very serious about his faith. He was quiet about his faith. He wasn't the kind of man who would sit around, like Sam Adams, for instance, and, 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 and uh, engage or lead a dinnertime theological discussion. Uh, he was a low church Anglican. He was uh, he didn't speak in uh, the vernacular of a 21st century evangelical. Although his doctrine, uh, personal doctrine that he believed as a as an Anglican, was certainly uh, uh, in in that category of being a historic evangelical um, Orthodox Christian doctrine. He was certainly not a deist, as some have claimed. Uh, there were very few deists actually involved among uh, the American people and, and among the founders, their leaders. Uh, the um, the historian, there was a historian uh, in the 20th century, Perry Miller, who spent his life studying the colonial era. He really was a great expert on American colonial uh, life in the colonial era. He described it well. He said that deism was what he called an exotic plant that never took root in America because of the overwhelming influence of the biblical worldview, that Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, so a deist was one who, who believed in an impersonal God, almost like a force, uh, a force-type creator who uh, launched and jump-started his creation and walked away from it. That's not the God that George Washington believed in. And uh, he was consistent in both his private writings, which were voluminous, and also in his, uh, his public statements, which were many, and consistent 
in expressing uh, that uh, faith, which was clearly, without question, a biblical faith. And so in, uh, in, in Washington's uh, decision-making uh, and the things he did, the things he didn't do, really governed by this. You look, for instance, um, he stands in real contrast to some of the leadership demonstrated by British commanders uh, who went into areas sometimes, uh, particularly in the South, where um, uh, they could have probably, had they handled the war right, could probably have... Uh, Americans were all reluct generally reluctant revolutionaries, and the British in some areas could have uh, kindled a, a great deal of support, but their behavior, their conduct, uh, really alienated people, and it made uh, Americans in droves go over to the side of the patriot movement. Well, Washington was contrast to that in the way that he treated his enemies, the way he treated loyalist civilians. He made sure that they were not taken advantage of. He made sure that they weren't robbed and plundered like the British did. There was a real discipline there. He also uh, 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 routinely observed victories by holding worship services. Uh, he encouraged his troops to observe the national days of prayer that the Continental Congress called, and there were many of them during the Revolution. Uh, he at one time uh, urged his troops to conduct themselves, in his words, uh, at, in, with their behavior as becoming a Christian soldier. Uh, he made sure that uh, the army was equipped with chaplains. He took that very seriously and encouraged his men to uh, to pick chaplains who were strong in their faith. Uh, so you see consistently through Washington's words and his behavior this character, and this character was reflection of his personal faith. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Rod Gregg is with us. He, of course, is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. A new book entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. We'll come back to more of our look at the role of faith in the founding of our nation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have been investigating the faith-centered foundation of the American resistance as found inside the pages of this new book, By the Hand of Providence. By the way, for you homeschooling parents out there in particular, I mean, the book is great for anybody, but homeschooling parents... You're looking for a great book that can be a wonderful teaching tool. Uh, you're going to want to go out and pick up a copy of this. Howard is the publisher available to bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those one or two still exist, am I right? I'm just checking. And, of course, through Amazon.com. Its author is with us tonight, Rod Gregg. Rod is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. By the way, a number of phenomenal books that he has penned down through the years, over 16 of them now all told, on topics of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Civil War, on and on the list goes. So check out anything uh, written by Rod. Again, G-R-A-G-G, -G, if you're going to Google his last name. Rod, it's curious. We talk about the notion oftentimes that, that some will report um, a number of the founding fathers as having been deists. I, I find it curious because if we look at the actions of these men and the great risk that they took, the personal sacrifice, it, it would seem to me that it would take an individual of greater character um, and, and, and a sense of, of higher calling than just somebody who casually acknowledge the existence of deity out there. It seems to me that most of the actions of these men in the founding days of this nation were people that were willing to sacrifice for a greater good because they knew the God that they served. 
Well, that's exactly right. You have to remember when we talk about uh, the founding fathers, the leaders of the American people in the colonial era, time of the American Revolution, that um, they reflected also the worldview of the American people, or they wouldn't have been holding office. And the worldview of the American people, without question at that time, was uh, faith-based. It was the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's no accident that the Declaration of Independence uh, begins with what it calls a... uh, self-evident truth that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence had to be acceptable to the American people who are going to live with it and in many cases going to die for it. And the signers knew that. And they knew they had to have biblical justification for something as big as an, an independence movement or a revolution. And so that's why the Declaration of Independence is laced with the language of faith. Half of it makes the case against King George III, because Americans came to to view him in great numbers, as did these crafters of the Declaration, as uh, a leader uh, who was unfit to be a ruler of free people because they had come to view him as a tyrant who wanted and intended to usurp the higher law of God and replace it with the law of man. And Americans, uh, being biblically literate, were very conscious of the whole biblical doctrine of submission to authority. And so they were reluctant revolutionaries. And not until uh, until the great numbers of them came to believe that uh, he was attempting to uh, usurp or take uh, authority over the higher law of God did they move into the ranks of uh, revolutionaries. And uh, they then came to view him and, and Parliament to a lesser degree as tyrants who were, uh, who were seeking to repress these inalienable or God-given rights, and they believed they had a biblical and moral duty to resist that. Now, as far as uh, the leaders and those who are deists, that really is something that has been uh, greatly exaggerated uh, in our day, and it really probably reflects more about... Uh, where American culture is today than it does the historical evidence of that. Time. Well, to be sure, I mean, the attempt, I think, too, to uh, to take God and faith out of the equation, to kind of neutralize America's stand historically on the position of faith uh, and, and kind of eradicate our faith-based roots. I mean, let's face it, if, if you can eliminate that at the foundation, it's much easier then to move forward in uh, not only creating a religion-neutral America, but in some corners even a religion religion hostile America. Well, you know, the great unreported story of our day, uh, of the last uh, 50 years, is the shift in the national consensus or the shift in the worldview of America's leadership from a historic, traditional uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that holds that God is the authority over all things and God should be the central focus of all things to a man-centered, secular, or humanistic worldview that says that man, not God, is the authority over all things, and that man, not God, should be the center of all focus. Now, that's a seismic shift, and, uh, and you know, why it's, uh, it's having a trickle-down effect in the, in the American population. You can see uh, that the leadership in America, in virtually all fields, has really shifted in that direction in, in the field of... Uh, uh, business, uh, law, government, uh, entertainment, uh, popular media, the culture, popular culture, the, the media, the news media, uh, movies, television, um, health care. 
it's shifted from this God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview. And then when you have something like that happens, it means that those who are um, responsible for conveying information have uh, are uncomfortable with things of faith, particularly of biblical faith. They are um, uh, they don't understand it in some cases. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it. Sometimes they really resist it or even hostile to it. And so for those reasons, I think that the uh, the fundamental foundation of America's origins as a nation, which was faith-based, and that faith was the Judeo-Christian worldview, has um, has really uh, almost been uh, it's been neglected. It's uh, and, and it's to a point that most Americans today, or at least many Americans today, don't know the story. Yeah, and, and sadly enough, and of course the irony is we see the manner in which this is demonstrated, the results of which are demonstrated in society and the world around us every single day. I mean, look at the disintegration of what's going on in our country morally and economically. Uh, there's proof positive, and even more so than what ought to be a firmer drive to return back to the understanding of our faith-based roots, um, the, the, the acceptance of the reality that colonial America was built on a foundation of biblical faith, and that any time you waver from it, you are going to be open for some pretty scary times, which we find ourselves in these days. By the hand of providence, how faith shaped the American Revolution, and hopefully will be the guide to the next one. That's my subtitle, my sub-subtitle. Rod Gregg, its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, a number of great resources that Rod has penned down through the years for those interested in a real, legitimate view of the faith influence on the founding of our nation. Then, too, again, for parents out there, homeschoolers, if you're looking for great teaching content, then, again, Google his name, Rod Gregg. You can find lots of great resources, too, all of which available on the web and through Amazon.com by the hand of Providence. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.